Okay, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Lord and our God, we submit ourselves to you today. We seek the beauty of holiness. We know, Lord God, that it is your intent that every word from your word should be instructive to us, to minister to our souls, to build us in righteousness. And we ask that this day would be no different. We know that your Holy Spirit is here in our midst today, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your presence as you watch over the words that are spoken. And I ask that uh, you will take this poor and halting messenger, and you'll guide him through all that you have provided for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to uh, have a little, uh, little exercise in Baptist air conditioning. Does anybody know what Baptist air conditioning is? No, that's when you open your Bible and you flip the pages. All right, so <clears throat> today we're going to do a little Baptist air conditioning. So whip open those Bibles, if you would, please. And we're going to begin back in the Old Testament. And I'd like you to turn to the book of Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat right directly in front of you. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the same as the Bibles that are underneath the chairs. So you may get a slightly different varying reading, but that's okay. And we're going to be turning to the 40th chapter of Isaiah, reading verses 3 through 5. Ah, the sound of Bible pages turning while you're getting there. This is going to be very interesting. As soon as I get pre done preaching, I'm darting out the door and heading up to Camp Roberts, which is just north of Paso Robles, for two weeks for annual training. So it's like <laughs> when Ron asked, he said, would you mind doing the 10th? I could. <laughs> That'll be real interesting. We'll see how that works. So if I, if I seem a little rushed, it's because there's a lot of other things going on in my mind. All right, we're starting with verses 3 through 5 in, verse, in chapter 40 of Isaiah. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, <clears throat> whenever you see the word Lord capitalized in an English text, I want to make sure you understand this is very important to the translators. We don't have any other way of rendering the proper name for God, Yahweh. Now, the Yahweh, Yahweh is the ineffable name, the one that the Jews will never speak. Because when God said, thou shalt not take the Lord, uh, the name of the Lord thy God in vain, he's talking about Yahweh. That name, the ineffable name, is the name of ultimate holiness. Now, when the translators translate the name Yahweh, the only way they have to kind of give you a hint that that's the name that's being used is when they capitalize the whole word Lord. So many versions use that technique. You'll notice that that word is capitalized here. So when it says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, he is using his own proper name. That means this is got the seal, the stamp of heaven on it. This is God's own personal seal on this promise. So it's going to happen. All right. Now I'd like for you to go forward to Malachi. And we're going to look at both chapters 3 and 4. We're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 3. So Malachi 3 verse 1. Now, many of these should sound familiar to you as you look at the passages that we read because you'll obviously see that these get reproduced in the New Testament. So, Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see that word capitalized again? There we are. Now this is big stuff. Now here we have another prophet, Malachi, who's now talking about that which precedes the end of times. Now in terms of the final times, eschatology of the Jewish nation, when they talk about the end of all things, they're saying, hmm, now we know that there's going to be a Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, there's been repeated prophecies about a Messiah coming. How's that going to happen? What's going to be the cause? What's going to be the sign that says that it's him? Well, we know two things. We're going to have a voice that's crying out in the wilderness. That's one. Second thing we know is that that messenger is going to come before the Messiah. Now, question, who is this, who's this going to be? I mean, who's this messenger supposed to be? Malachi answers the question. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So flip over there, another page over, and look at verse 4 and 5, or 5 and 6, excuse me. You'll notice it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Notice, Lord capitalized again. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. All right, so we know Messiah is coming. We know there's going to be somebody that's going to be the precursor. And now we know that it's Elijah. So the Pharisees, the scribes, all those people, when they were sitting around wondering how it was going to happen, they knew that it was Elijah that it was going to come first. When you set up a Seder, what is one chair you must have at the Seder dinner? You must have Elijah's chair. Why should you have Elijah's chair? Because Elijah is supposed to come. Now that's gotten weird over the centuries, there are all kinds of myths and stuff that have surrounded this whole thing. And the Jewish, uh, um, Jewish society has, in many cases, got pretty bizarre things like for every circumcision, Elijah's chair is set up for a circumcision because of some obscure rabbinic statement that was made somewhere. Elijah is now made present because Elijah blew it at some point according to this rabbi. And so he's now condemned to have to sit for every circumcision. Okay. Like I said, it's gotten weird. <clears throat> All right, now let's, let's fast forward. Let's go to uh, Luke verse, or chapter 1, verses 5 through 80. Yes, this is a long reading here. Like I said, Baptist air conditioning. So Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start with the fifth verse, and we're going to go down to, um, down to verse 80. Now, um, I'm going to hang on to, uh, hang on to a couple of comments because uh, you'll notice that the beginning in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Uh, let me reserve my comments about Herod and his lineage until we get into a second passage that we're going to read because uh, we're going to kind of, we're going to run into some terminology that's kind of obscure for us. And we need to know what that terminology is. So hang on. But here's at this point in the days of Herod, king of Judah or Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah or Zecharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife of, uh, he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Quick comment. 
Advanced in years usually means somewhere around 70 or 80 years old. Okay, so we're talking about old, past childbearing. Okay, this is not like a 50-year-old woman having children. This is a senior having a child. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. Now, very quickly, back in the Old Testament, if you go back into uh, Leviticus and also later as you get into Kings and so on, you're going to run into lists. And these lists are the descendants of Aaron. And those descendants of Aaron, basically the family heads make up the divisions. Basically what these are, actual lineage of the priests of Aaron. And so the Aaronic priesthood descends for years and years and years into, uh, into Israel's future, even to the time of the New Testament. Now, there have been a couple of times, the time of the captivity in Babylon, and then again when there was the destruction of the temple when the Romans came in, or the Greeks came in, uh, under Alexander the Great. So we've had a couple of destructions of the temple, a couple of times the priesthood pretty much you know, decimated, and then once the, the temple is rebuilt, the temple services are reinstituted. They have to go back and recover these family names and see who's left. And those people then fill out the priesthood. And there's a specific monthly regimen of who comes into the temple to serve at what times. You get one week of service every year. That's pretty much how it works. So your division comes in, you spend a week, and then you, you might do that. Well, once, maybe twice a year. It's a cyclical thing. So it just comes up your time of the year. You come up to Jerusalem from wherever you live. If you happen to be in Nazareth, you come to, from Nazareth. If you happen to live out in Bethlehem, you go, to, go from Bethlehem. And you stay at the temple for your week. You do all your services. Then at the end of your week, you check out and you go home. That's how this works. So <clears throat> Zechariah's division is on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. He's chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This is, by the way, during the time where we have the annual feast. This is the big one. This is the Day of Atonement, when there is going to be one priest who is not, this is not the incense, but there is one priest who during this whole feast is going to be going into the Holy of Holies to put the blood on the, uh, on the altar, okay, before God. So that's during this period of time. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power, notice, of Elijah. Ah, okay. Quick refresher course. Didn't we just read Malachi 4, 5 through 6? And didn't it say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great awesome day of the Lord comes? Right? So now here is the angel's prophecy. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah is in the holy place 
there is a large curtain between the holy place and the rest of the area of service. He comes into that holy place, and he is by himself. An angel appears out of nowhere. It is obviously an angel. He's terrified. This is an angel from the Lord. He gives Zechariah a prophecy. Zechariah, no slouch when it comes to knowing the word of God. Okay? Smart guy, well-trained, obvious situation, and what's Zechariah's response? Uh, the, what, uh, how, 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 do, how do I, how shall I know this? Uh, you know, uh, like, how's this going to work? Have you never read about Abraham? Zechariah, Abraham, strike any bells? <laughs> Let's see. Now, how old was he when they finally had a kid? You know, is anything too too hard for God, right? Okay, so what does Zechariah say? Oh, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. <laughs> I don't know how long the dwell time was <laughs> for the angel to answer him. <laughs> but I'm sure the angel is kind of sitting there with that. <laughs> You know, one of those, dude, how, you know, how much of this is kind of out of place for you? All right. And he says, I am Gabriel. This is not an unknown name. Now, if Gabriel comes in and says something to you, that's a showstopper. Gabriel lets him know exactly who he means when he says, Gabriel, just in case there's any misunderstanding. I stand in the presence of God. Yeah. I am, a, I am Gabriel. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God. Now, a notice that where we hear that name before, by the way, is uh, Daniel chapter 9. So if you go back to chapter 9, you're going to get Daniel, or you're going to get Gabriel again. So Gabriel's been around a while. You know, sort of since the beginning. All right. <clears throat> and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And, okay, now comes the kicker. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, some of your versions say in seclusion, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. To be childless in the Jewish culture was a horrible social stigma that was considered a curse from God to be childless, to be barren. And I have noticed that we in our society have decided that it is better to go to all manner of science to try to solve that problem rather than put up with the stigma of being barren. You notice that? I mean, how much money is spent on the fertility trade just to avoid the stigma of being childless? Uh, it's a major deal. And, and you can imagine how heartbroken somebody is when they realize that they are barren. And you wonder, you live your whole life wondering, what happened? 
What, what, what went wrong? What did I do? And you notice it's particularly hard for Elizabeth because it says that they lived righteously before God their whole lives. They obeyed the commandments. They did what they were supposed to do. They had faith in God. They were believers. They were examples, and yet she's barren. Okay? And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she now becomes pregnant in her old age. Okay? Well, now we skip through a little bit of an announcement. We're going to go down a few verses. Uh, Let's see. We're going down to... You see verse 26, and now you see that Gabriel, kind of a busy guy, he's got a pretty heavy social calendar right now because he's making a lot of visits. He stops by some uh, some little town in Nazareth and sees this girl Mary, right? Well, I want you to skip past that down to verse 39. Because, you know, we know about what happened with Mary, so we're going to pass over that part, and we're going to get now to where we pick up with a visit to Elizabeth, who at this point is fairly well along in her pregnancy. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zecharias to greet Elizabeth. Now, you can imagine... You know, we've already had lots of sermons about, you know, if you read this situation with Mary and you read it existentially, you kind of get the feeling of, of uh, you know, Mary's surprise and, you know, struck with awe that, you know, she would be picked of all people, right, to do this. She's got no credit to herself that she can claim. Being a righteous person, she understands this. And so she's kind of running to Elizabeth, who is not only a relative, but obviously, again, somebody who is righteous and holy and understands this stuff, theoretically. And you can almost see Mary going, i got to talk to somebody about this. Obviously, I can't talk to anybody in my town. Because you know what they're going to say. They're all going to be going, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, she knows Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age, and that this is from God, what better person to go to, right? Okay, so now here's what happens. So, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, the baby kicking on steroids, You know, one of those where you go, whoa, you know, what are you playing basketball in there or something? What's going on? You know, then that baby leaps and it's like very noticeable. And you'll notice something then. So the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now catch this. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. Now, you notice something. This is a loud voice. This is not some, this is a shout. This is, this is somebody who's, you know, belting it out there. People five blocks away are hearing this woman yelling this blessing. Why? Why this blessing? Let's go back for just a second. Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Do you realize that the people of Israel have had no prophet for 400 years? God has been quiet for four. Hundred years. 
What is Elizabeth saying here? Elizabeth is saying that God has spoken. He's spoken to this young girl. And look at what's happened. Look at what's happened to me. God has remembered his promise to Abraham. Then when you go after this, you get into Mary's Magnificat. Take some time to read it over. What is the Magnificat? Well, it's just blessed is the Lord God. That's what it is. That's Latin. Magnificat means, you know, great, glorious is God. And God is speaking after 400 years of silence. But what is he saying now? I've remembered Abraham. I promised Abraham that there would be a nation that would follow him that would be so countless, it would be more than the stars. Abraham, come on outside, buddy. I want you to just look up for a second, okay? Take some time now. Start at one horizon, whichever one you want, and start counting, bud. Let's see if you can get them all done. You ever seen that Hubble satellite photograph of deep space? That one where they pointed it at an area where there were no stars? A black area? And they just left the shutter open? This is black. No stars. They were not looking or zeroing in on any stellar object. They wanted to take a picture of empty space. That picture is filled with uncountable numbers of galaxies. You look at it and it's just astounding. And this is supposed to be empty space. Go for it, Abraham. Do what you can about counting those stars, but that's what your generations will be. That's who you will have in your family. And that is now being fulfilled. That's what these two women are standing here proclaiming the glories of God for. Because they are standing at the beginning of that fulfillment of something that started back when God chose a single family and said, I want you to go to a land you've never heard of before. That all led to a kid with a coat that led to a time of slavery, that led to an ultimate release of a nation, that led to the giving of a law, that led, in turn, to the birth of Jesus. Do you see the connection? This is now the culmination of all history. Now, if I could just read this, Now the time for Elizabeth to give birth had come. She bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by that name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote his name is John. And they all wondered. Because really, honestly, you go back into Zechariah's family lineage and you'll find out that Zechariah's family lineage is Zechariah, 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 Zechariah. You know, there's a whole bunch of Zechariahs in his lineage. So... His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed. What is the first thing he says after all this time? Remember, he's been quiet now for over nine months. Nine months. He's been mute. And what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? He spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. Why fear? Well, really pretty simple, isn't it? Fear comes over all the people because they look at this guy who's been mute for over nine months, and they're saying to themselves, well, you know, God cursed him, and now all of a sudden he's free of the curse? What's going on? How does this stuff happen? 
And these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid up, laid them up in their hearts and said, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, picture him. This is dad looking down on his baby, and he says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give to us light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the ways of peace. And the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. All right, here we go. We got John. Now, let's talk about John. He's all grown up, and now he's going to show up. So... In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, I want you to notice something about the Bible, about especially Luke. Luke 3, 1 through 20, by the way, is where we're at. Luke 3, verses 1 through 20. Now, I want you to notice something about the Bible. A lot of people say, uh, well, you know, it's, it's the redemption story, but it's not history. Uh, yeah, okay, let's get past this whole part that says, During the reign of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod Antipas being tetrarch. Oh yeah, that's not history. Yeah, we all know that, seeing as how we're digging up coins and evidence of Herod's temple and all that good stuff. All right, Don, you want to put up that slide for me there for a second? All right, now I know this is going to be real hard to see here, so I'm going to use this handy-dandy laser thing. If I push the wrong button, you all disappear. All right. <clears throat> now, what we have here is I want you to see this area, this whole area right in here, used to be Herod the Great's empire or kingdom, if you will. He was called the king of Judea. And you will notice that if you just flip back to uh, Luke 1.5, you'll see that Herod is the king of Judea. When we talk about Judea at that time, we're talking about this whole area. Now, um, he is the Herod, Herod the Great, a, a great builder, uh, reigns for over 40 years. And honestly, some of the incredible things... How, how many of you have ever seen uh, pictures of Masada? Now, that area... That whole mountainside that was carved out of stone and was built up into the citadel, that was one, one of Herod's summer palaces, Masada. That incredible edifice was one of Herod's summer palaces, complete with pools and fountains and the whole nine yards. Herod's temple was built during his reign. He reconstructs the temple. Herod builds this gigantic citadel, has his own tomb made, uh, you know, it's this huge stone thing. Well, by the way, 2007, they found it. They found his tomb. And what's very interesting is they dug into the remnants of the tomb. They found the sarcophagus where Herod's body was. Sarcophagus had been smashed to smithereens without one single piece of him remaining. 
people really grooved on him as a leader. <laughs> Once he finally kicks, man, they couldn't get at him when he was alive, but man, after he's dead, you bet. <laughs> they desecrated that tomb big time, and the evidence of it is just strewn all over the place. Okay, so now he dies, and of course, he's got sons. So he's going to split this up. Now, let me give you a clue into the Greek word tetrarch. You'll see it right here in this passage in Luke 3, in verse 1. You see Herod being tetrarch. Now, people get confused by Herod, Herod, Herod. Almost everybody in this list is named Herod. Okay, so we're going to kind of split them up so you know who's who. Now... The first Herod that gets mentioned after Pontius Pilate and Tiberius Caesar, you have Herod, that's Antipas. Now, Herod, Herod Antipas is a tetrarch, and tetrarch means a ruler of four. In other words, one of four. Usually, you would have four rulers that concurrently reign over a geographic area. Now, they don't rule over the same area. Usually, what they'll do is subdivide into provinces, and they are each rulers of a province. That's what happened here. So now, we have Herod Antipas in Galilee. So there's Herod Antipas area right there. And he's got this little slice right here as well. So he has Galilee. His brother, Philip, Herod Philip, by the way, tetrarch of the region of Itria and Trachonitis. And that's this area. Let's see. That's this area right in here. No, I'm sorry. Right in here. Okay. And then you have... Um, and Licinius, Herod Licinius, is tetrarch of Abilene. That's this area here. Or, I'm sorry, this area here, the gray one. And then you have um, somebody missing, because there's supposed to be four, but notice that Luke only puts three names on there. And by the way, who's this guy? Where Jerusalem is? I mean, it'd be kind of nice to know who the ruler of that area was, right? Well, that's because what we have here is we have Herod Archelaus. And Herod Archelaus has Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. So he's got all this zone right in here. And it's interesting that Luke leaves him out. But there is, uh, there's been some history about that. They think that it may be that Archelaus died just as John came out of the wilderness. So there may have been a void of leadership in that area at that time. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Why the variant reading of the Isaiah passage? When Luke takes that passage out of Isaiah. He's doing it from a document called the Septuagint, which was the Greek Old Testament. Okay? Now, John comes out, and he is the one who is the prophet in the spirit of Elijah, and he says, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll see that. He, came, he said to the crowds that came to be baptized, "You, uh, I'm sorry, he says... Um, uh, yeah, he said, to the, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be uh, baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, why is John getting all of the people, the hierarchy of Jerusalem and everybody upset? Here's why. 
During the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews had developed kind of a ritual for proselytizing Gentiles to come into the Jewish religion. To do this, if you're a male, you need to be circumcised. Now, after you're circumcised, you need to go through this ritual washing. Now, nobody baptized you. You baptized yourself. Basically, you got down in the water and you ceremonially wash off the filth of being a Gentile. It's a symbolic act that takes you from the worldliness of a Gentile and now turns you into a Jew. Okay? Now, in the Jewish community, what is a Gentile? Filthy, right? They're scum. They're not to be touched. You don't even get the dust of them on your clothes, right? Gentiles, bad. Washed, they're okay. John comes to Israel, to the Jews, and says, you have to be washed. If you were a Jew, would you think that was just okay? What's he saying? He's saying you are as filthy as Gentiles. And you need to be cleansed. No wonder people are upset with John. But there are those people that now God is calling. They're coming out to John. And you notice he's pretty harsh with these people. Now, John is not pulling any punches. Now, we all know John wore camel hair. He had a leather belt. And he had this kind of weird diet. Bugs. And honey, right, well, you know, if you want to go on a diet, by the way, that's a good way to do it. You know, just go down to one of the bait shops and buy yourself some, you know, like grasshoppers and get some honey and you'll be okay. Uh, You'll lose weight, I'll tell you that. Okay, now in the interest of time, we're going to need to skip forward, cut out a lot of the intervening periods. Now, I'm just going to kind of hit a couple highlights on John before we get to the meat of what happens in Mark because we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Yes, we are skipping over a part of Mark because, uh, I don't know, Ron gave me some lame excuse about what he's doing next week. So anyway. It's not going to matter. I'm not going to be here, so what the heck. Anyway, um, <laughs> so anyway, um, if you look at, uh, um, if you look, just flip over to Mark 6 real quick, and you're going to be starting in the 14th verse. In the interest of time, I want to kind of shorten up what happens. John, of course, is filled with the Holy Spirit. He sees Jesus coming, and we all know what happens, right? He says, you know, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everybody hears it. All of John's disciples all go, okay, that's the guy that... that, uh, John has testified to as being the Lord. That's the Messiah. There he is. Jesus has pointed him out. Now, the other thing that's important, of course, is that Jesus comes to him and says, I need to be baptized. Which totally geeks John out. Because John is going... (laughs) Okay, so God is standing in front of me right now asking to be baptized. What's wrong with this picture? (laughs) Now, let's you. Me, who am who am I again? Oh yeah, I'm the scum of the earth, right? <laughs> and you're asking me to baptize you. Okay, wrong, just wrong. And you could see John's got his theology on right. He really does. He knows exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate. He knows it. John has no illusions at all. Does John have himself properly identified? He says, yeah, the one that's coming, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. When you're a disciple of somebody, you took care of all the needs of your master, your rabbi, except their feet. You didn't mess with people's feet. That was the lowest slave in the household's job to do the thing with the sandals and wash the feet. 
Okay? That was not something the disciples did. They don't take care of their master's feet. Which is one of the reasons why it geeks the disciples out later when Jesus washes their feet in the upper room, right? That one, that one was also out of, way out of control here, okay? Now, the other thing that's wrong with this situation is John properly identifies himself. He's not even worthy to be able to untie the sandals. That means he's lower than the lowest possible slave. He can't even re- reach up high enough to untie the shoes which is something disciples never did. You see where he's at? Now here's John being told that he's going to baptize God incarnate. Okay, which he overcomes. He does it because Jesus just says, don't have time right now to explain it to you, bud. Just do it. Roger. Yes, sir. Carry on. And he does his number and that's it. Jesus goes out in the wilderness. Now, Herod, all this time, has been hearing the news. Herod is not stupid. Herod has his ears open and he's listening to what's going on out there in the population, hearing all the rumors about this, that, and the other holy man because being a religious area, there's a lot of people jumping up and down about religion, all different kinds, and he keeps his ear to the ground. Now, he's heard about John, he's heard all about John, and then what he hears about John is that John is going off on Herod and about the fact that he's decided that he wants his brother Philip's wife. So he takes her. And, of course, you all know the laws. This is like a, you know, no-go under any circumstances. You just don't have your brother's wife. And he does. So John is saying, you know, here's Herod. He's got his brother's wife, totally wrong. And so Herod imprisons him. Now, like I say, to make the old long story short, here we are in Mark chapter 6, 14 through 29. You'll notice, by the way, Mark, who's generally very abbreviated in everything else he says, in this one he takes some time to spell it out. You notice that what he does is he's hearing King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are in him. But others are saying he's Elijah. And others, he's the prophet of like one of the prophets of old. But when others said he's a prophet like one of the, or excuse me, when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For John had, I mean, for Herod had sent and seized John, bound him in prison, and for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he was married to her, for John had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but could not, and so on and so on and so on. Then he tells the story about Salome and, you know, coming and doing the dance and um, Herod granting her wish that they deliver John's head. Now, the context of the story essentially is this. Jesus' name is getting out there. People are beginning to wonder, who is this guy? And what exactly is he doing? Well, he's healing. He's raising people from the dead. He is restoring people to faith. They are baptizing people. There's a lot of good stuff going on here, and Herod is hearing about all this, and he's starting to get scared. Because he's been feeling guilty about having killed John. And Herod is really kind of worried that this whole thing is going to kind of fall down around his head. Somehow, maybe something's going to happen, and he's going to be held responsible for that. Oh, you think? So that's what this is really all about, is Herod is getting scared. And when he hears all this news about Jesus, he really starts kind of obsessing on Jesus and thinking to himself, what's happened is John's spirit raised up and got into this guy Jesus, and now he's going to come back and haunt me. Which kind of shows you where Herod is at in his head. Okay? Now... 
Sorry, we had to cut that sort of short there because we're out of time. But I want to just mention this one thing to you. Jesus says in Matthew 17, 9 through 13, and when they were coming down from the mountain, this is transfiguration, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So in other words, John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah to do the things that Elijah was supposed to do in preparation for the king. The ruling people didn't see him for what he was. And they killed him. Oddly enough, Jesus says, same thing's going to happen to me. Here I am, Messiah, they're going to kill me. But I wanted you to see something in this. All of this was at the hand of God. Pharaoh didn't really, honestly, he didn't have a choice. He had a choice, but he didn't have a choice. This whole thing happened because God made it happen. It was orchestrated at his hand. This whole story of John and what happened to him and what happened to Jesus was orchestrated by God. It was according to the plan. Because, again, our salvation depended on it. With that in mind, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you once again for your word that continues to show us amazing visions of the tremendous truth that you are behind all this, you're in control of all this, and you do it for our good. We are so amazed at this awesome salvation that you've given us. We bless your holy name because you've saved us in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you gave us. We thank you for the power that comes from that to live a life worthy of the calling. And we praise you for the life of John. And so we thank you for this time that you've given us to reflect on his life, reflect on the word. For We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.